It's one of the biggest problems with the book of Hebrews. We don't know who it was written to. That is kind of a problem, but not as big of a problem, because we have an idea that it was written to Jews who spoke Greek and who had been converted to Christianity. But that's getting a lot closer. We don't, we don't know when. We're not sure if it was 60, 65, or 80. But it's not a deal breaker, right? So that's kind of a problem, but that's not that. What's the biggest problem with the book of Hebrews? Well, it, that's a problem for us because most Christians, unfortunately, drift toward weighing the New Testament much more than the Old. There was a guy in church history named Marcion who insisted that we should cut out most of the Old Testament because God looks really mean in the Old Testament. And he's one of our earliest heretics in the church. It's called, uh, he's a Mar he's Marcionism. A Marcionite was one who believed the Old Testament should be largely ignored. There are churches that do this. Now, there's a church that I heard of very recently, not mine, that handed out um, versions of the Old Testament to their congregation so that, so that people would only look at the stuff that would attribute to the God revealed in Christ. Very, very Jeffersonian approach to Bible translation. So. Yeah, at least not at first. He doesn't even get yeah. a mention by name until no. we're into chapter two. No problem. Yeah, that's that's closer to where I'm getting at. What I'm getting to. What's the biggest? Now let's let's pretend that we're the audience. Let's pretend that we're the recipients of the book of Hebrews. Okay. So let's talk about us. Who who are we? We are Jewish in lineage, Jewish in history, but we've converted to Christianity. What's my biggest problem now that I'm following this Messiah, Jesus? What's that? What do I do with the old traditions? How baked into the life of an Israelite are the old traditions? How so? How so? Circumcision, yeah. Festivals. The calendar, the seasons, the, yes. Okay, what else? What else is, what's that? The rituals that they do. The, the cleanliness thing and the, yeah. The, totally, yeah, to, completely different. The tabernacle, they, the, the, how they understand the role of the prophet. What do they do with their buildings and what do they do with their tabernacles? What do they do about the temple? What do they do with all these furnishings? What do they do with all these detailed instructions? And then what about the priests? And can you think of anybody that a Jewish person would especially uphold as, as important to their faith? Who are, who are their earthly faith heroes? No, no, like of, of antiquity. Moses. Moses is a top guy. Who else? Abraham. Who else? Isaac. Who else? Jacob. What about Joshua? David. What? And so it's hard for us to comprehend because we're kind of in this stream that we've been in for a couple thousand years now, it's hard for us to get into the mind of a Jewish Christian, a follower of Jesus who's converted from Judaism to Christianity. It's hard for us to understand just how challenging it is. Which is why I mentioned in passing a few days ago just the observation that it's very difficult for church people to change. And the only, the closest we can come is getting rid of pews. Like, <laughs> That's the, that's the closest we can get to identifying with what it must have been like. for. But that just doesn't even... Imagine, okay, so, so imagine now all of a sudden you have a completely different view of dietary restriction. And consider what happens to Peter when all of a sudden God shows him the blanket of animals and says, take and eat. Remember that? That's like my life verse right there. You know? You have, you have different dietary restrictions. You have different ritual practices. Your Saturdays are freed up. <laughs> now, it took longer than like, it, it was over time that the Sabbath shifted to Sunday. And there's a whole history there that you would find both fascinating, but you'd also be surprised at the pagan influences. You'd also be surprised at the pagan influences of Christmas and Easter, but that's another thing to talk about. 
Um, oh yeah, the way that you'd relate to your family. Because let's say that you and I are of the same family, and I convert and you don't. What are you going to be saying to me? You're out of your mind. Yeah. You're, yeah. In, in fact, you might even say, you're so "How you're, you or I am unclean to you now, right? Yeah. And, and you're, you're worried about me. You're praying to Yahweh about me. You're talking to your network about me, and all of a sudden, I become kind of the outcast. I think respect the parents because yeah. we're going to deny. We're saying they're going the wrong way. Because what am I doing by not listening to her? That's right. I'm breaking a... Commandment. I'm breaking a little commandment. I'm breaking one of the top no, ten. you're disobeying your father. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not honoring them at all. That's right. I must really believe that this Jesus is the Messiah. Yes. That's got to be the only thing that would push me to make such radical changes to my life. Mm-hmm. Now, let's push that into 21st century here in the thumb of Michigan. <coughs> what difference does it make when a person who is living a largely maybe spiritual, quasi-religious, but not engaged in the ways of Christ, somebody who doesn't know Jesus, has heard about him, but isn't following him, what kind of changes should take place in the life of a person who suddenly decides to follow the Messiah Jesus? What difference will it make in that person's life? If we understand the scripture, we understand the tradition of the church, we understand even the reasonableness of following Jesus and the experience of those who have gone before us, we should expect nothing but total change, right? If the scripture says that we've been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, how much about us should change once we're following Jesus? How much should change? Like everything, everything. So I wonder if one thing that Hebrews gives us inspiration in is in our following Jesus and in our abandoning things that are reasonable, supported by our family, supported by our tradition, and all of a sudden, Everything gets rearranged because we're following Christ. I don't remember who said it. Was it C.S. Lewis? Um, or was it Chesterton? One of them talked about how Satan's approach is to basically give us a case of like mild Christianity. Because he's not trying to pull us away as much as he is trying to just get us off a little bit. Because, because if, if the accuser can get you to just follow your safe version of Jesus then you are inoculated to the true Jesus because you're in a far greater danger zone because you don't think your life is a mess. I follow Jesus. Really? Tell me about that. What does that mean for you? I spend up to 20 minutes in devotions every morning. Every day? No, not every day, but but many days. Really? How else does he make a difference? Well, when I'm in trouble, I call to him and he answers. Great. How else does Jesus make a difference? Kevin? Don't mean to interrupt. Family number 20. Campsite 13. Campsite 13. Family 20. Are you in here? Campsite 13. You know your campsite. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. Sorry. Sorry to interrupt. Sorry. I suddenly uh, realized I don't remember my family number. <laughs> That's why they're important. Thank you. Well, I'll check with the office later. Yeah. I was born and raised pagan. You were born and raised pagan. Could you come up here for would you come up here for a second? Would that be okay? Yeah. Okay. What what tell us your name? Some Sue Swapwood. Sue. Sue was born and raised pagan. Pretty much. So what do, what does that mean? Well, my mom was very much into mysticism, hybridology, horoscope, um, biorhythm. That was anti-Christian. Was she into it to be anti-Christian, or did it just happen that it was it anti-Christian? It just happened. Okay. Oh, tarot card reading. Where did she come? Where, when did she? Did, was that like a, your grandmother did that as well, or did she? Grandma that did now? it. Okay. Passed it on to mom. Mm-hmm. Was it something that would have passed on to you? Yes. And was it passed on to you? Um, it started when I came to Christ in okay. college. Okay. So you're, you're you're so in high school and everything. This was just normal for you. Yes. Just, this very, is spirituality. Very did you ever feel? different from your friends in high school? Because your mom was like, still spiritual? Um, did, it fe- did it feel strange to you at all? No, it was Mm-mm. normal. I was born and raised very with Very important, it. yeah. I was born and raised Because in it. our childhood, we assume that whatever we're experiencing is normal, right? Yeah. Yeah. Thus the importance of the mission of a place like Bayshore, 
when kids come to Christ at a place like this, because yeah. they go, oh, there's, there's another way. Mm -hmm. So then what happened in college? Um, came to the Lord. Okay. Some friends were witnessing, and I started asking questions, and mm -hmm. came to the Lord. Mm -hmm. And so you came to the Lord, and then what happened after that at home? Radical change. All right. My mom told me never to call home again. Oh. And I had no contact with her probably for about four months in college. What changed about you? Um, everything. I used to have bad anxiety issues with being raised like that. My mom was also mentally ill, so that God just took all that right out of my my personal life as far as how I relate to things and how I how I dealt with things. Okay. So let's say that there's somebody in this room who has contact with wait, how do I put this? How do I how do I say this? What advice would you give to our world today in regards to what you're talking about? I'll just leave it there. Follow scriptures. Know uh -huh. your scriptures. Uh -huh. Know them intimately. Uh -huh. Use them. Apply them. Make them a part of your life. Know the word of God so well that your thoughts are from him. Amen? Amen. Thank you. Couldn't have said it, couldn't have said it better myself. What do we do with all this ritual? What about the feast, the sacrifices, the law? What about our family? We're really putting a lot at risk to follow Jesus, which is the way it is now. We just don't sense it, especially since we live in a nation that has at least a mild openness to things spiritual, although Christianity is less and less of a poster child for U.S. religion, which is actually okay, because let's just point out the fact that Christianity has always done best under persecution. Yes, it always grows. Yeah. So let's talk about the dual nature of prophecy. Let's go to um, actually Hebrews 1. We're gonna, we made it all the way to verse 5. We jumped ahead a little bit to chapter 2 yesterday, but we need to go back and finish chapter 1. Here's why I'm so excited about Hebrews chapter 1. Because it really does sort of set the stage, if you will, for the rest of the book. And it doesn't seem like it at first. It almost seems like the writer is like, let's get angels out of the way. He's making a far deeper, he or she, they're making a far deeper sort of argument and foundation uh, than it looks like on the surface. Okay, so do you notice in your scripture, if you have a Bible like this, um, it says the son is superior to the angels, and then verse 5 says, to which of the angels did God ever say? And then you'll notice that the text sort of jumps in a little bit like that, like they kind of hit the tab button and they did that. Oftentimes, the way that the, especially the New Testament is laid out, they do that to show you that they're quoting something. What's being quoted here? So, we're, so this, that, that's true. This is, so, the, so it's not like the editors of the NIV threw that in. The actual writer of Hebrews references an Old Testament scripture. In this case, uh, it's the Psalms. And so it says right there, Hebrews 1.5, You are my son, today I have become your father. Would someone please look at Psalm 2.7? Jump over to Psalm 2, 7. I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. King James? Yes, so beautiful, so flowing. Mm -hmm. So, that's the Old Testament scripture, which they just called, you know, the Psalms, the book of Psalms, that, actually, I don't even know if they called it that, but anyway, <laughs> that the writer of Hebrews is quoting to point out two things. <coughs> So who's Psalm 2-7 about? Mm, who's it about originally? It's originally about David, right? And so Psalm 2-7 has an immediate fulfillment in a guy named David. Psalm 2-7 at that time was fulfilled when David gets on the scene and starts doing his, his David stuff. But the dual nature of prophecy says that when God speaks and his word always gets stuff done, that action, that fulfillment, sometimes has a multiphasic approach to it, meaning it's fulfilled now, but that there's also a remote, a future fulfillment yet to come. And our problem is always chronological and optic, meaning that you and I are stuck in time. We are actually trapped in the minutes and seconds of this, of this world. 
intentionally created by God. In fact, if you think about it, when it comes to the incarnation, one of the biggest limitations that Jesus puts upon himself is to be limited by time and space. Because he's the eternal now. Jesus is above time, which is mind-boggling. But in being above time, he's not limited like we are. Like when you say today at about 10.30, I can't wait till lunch. You're revealing that you are limited by time. Or when you get on the phone with a loved one, as I did last night as I was talking to Zach on FaceTime and talked to Emily on the phone, I said to both of them, oh, I wish I could be there with you right now. What am I limited by? Space. Jesus takes on these limitations. Can you imagine surrendering that much control? I mean, we talk about all the things that Jesus gives up. Jesus gives up his freedom and locks himself into chronology and spends 30 years in relative obscurity. Jesus gives up his ability to be all places at once, in essence, and says, I'm just going to be right here and right here only. Can you imagine how limited? You would have to be Jesus to be able to handle that kind of limitation. Because I don't like it when I'm like in a little room or stuck in a cage, and, and I don't like it when time seems to go by slowly. And for, I don't like that. Can you imagine that's what every second is like and every place is like? This is, this is I don't know, this just blows my mind. And then we have, we have optic limits which means I can only see what I can only see, right? Does God have any kind of optic limit? No, he can see it all for two reasons. One, he's, he sees everywhere, and two, he's above time, so he sees every time. There's a writer named Paul Tillich. His book is called, one of his many books, one book is called The Eternal Now. And philosopher Tillich makes the argument that to God, it's always now. What? To God, it's always now. So when Psalm 2-7 comes along, it's really easy to say, well, that clearly applies to David. But we forget that there's an immediate fulfillment and a remote fulfillment. Look at Acts 13-33. Somebody, please. Acts 13-33. Acts 13-33. What you got? God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Mm -hmm. So there's Acts 13, and it says, I'm about to quote a psalm, and this is in reference to who? <coughs> Jesus, right? Psalm 2-7 originally applies to David. That's the immediate fulfillment ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus. So here's a very general statement that just needs to be said again and again when it comes to the book of Hebrews. Jesus fulfills everything. David was like a temporary Jesus, in a sense. David was essentially preparing the way for Jesus, the Son of God, to ultimately fulfill the prophecy. And so the truth for us today is that little verse where the writer of Hebrews just quotes a psalm in verse 5, 1, 5, that God's perspective and God's purpose has the final authority in prophecy. So if you've ever been frustrated, like God said that this would come true in his word, he gave me this promise, why isn't it happening? It could be because he sees something you don't see, like say time, the future, the situation, or it could be that he has a better purpose than you have in mind for yourself. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father? Wouldn't it be silly for David to think, that was clearly about me and me alone? No, it's about Jesus. So let's go even deeper. What scripture verse is God applying to your heart that he really ultimately fulfills already in Christ? Meaning, at what point do we just step into the reality of what God has called us to? Not because it's happened, but because through Christ it's fulfilled. Every prophecy spoken over you is already fulfilled in Christ. No doubt. So it's not that we can't trust God. It's that we don't have the ability to let go and just let him be God. His perspective and purpose have the final authority to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father? By the way, that's a rhetorical question in the scripture. In Hebrews 1, 
1.5. Do you all know what rhetorical questions are? If you said yes, you don't get it. <laughs> no. One of my favorite moments from The Simpsons is Homer's watching TV, and the, the, somebody on TV uses the word rhetorical, and Homer goes, <laughs> rhetorical. To which his brilliant daughter Lisa says, Dad, do you even know what rhetorical means? And Homer says, do I know what rhetorical means? Like, that's a five-stack joke right there. That's joke within a joke within a joke within a joke. It's brilliant. Anyway. What's the answer to, to the question posed in Hebrews 1.5? To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father? What's the, what's the answer? No angels. No angels. There's no angel that God has ever said that to. Consider, again, the next verse. I will be his father and he will be my son. Somebody look at... Psalm 89.27. Psalm 89.27. I will be his father, and he will be my son. So the first one is, Jesus has been begotten by the Father. And then the second part is, God saying, I will be his father, and Jesus will be my son. What's Psalm 89.27 say? What you got? It says, I will also appoint him my firstborn. Mm-hmm. <coughs> In that verse, we're, that's perfect. In that verse, we're talking about who? We're talking about David. Now look at Colossians 1.15. One of the most perplexing verses in the New Testament. Colossians 1.15. I like to have people actually flip through the pages because I want you to see it. I want you to mark it. I want it to stick out as you see it, read it, hear it. And you'll be way more familiar with your scripture. Okay, uh... Colossians 1.15, please. He is the divine portrait, the true likeness of the invisible God, and the firstborn heir of all creation. Yeah, so it says, what version is that? Good News Translation? Uh, that's the okay. Passion. The pa- oh, that's right. We about that. Yeah, Colossians 1.15 is, for he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. A paradoxical statement about Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God. Which is like saying, you know that God that you couldn't possibly see? Mm-hmm. You see him in Jesus. Well, who's Jesus? He's the image of the invisible. Pardon? Yeah. And then Paul uses the word firstborn. In fact, we refer to Jesus as the firstborn quite a bit. He's the firstborn over all creation. Paul calls him the firstborn from among the dead and the firstborn from among the brethren. What are we trying to show with this firstborn stuff? Original. What's that? He's very original, yeah. There's no one like him, right? He existed before creation. He pre-exists. He's, he's above creation, of course. Did everything go to him? Everything goes to him, yeah. He's the heir? He's the heir, yes. What about that he's the firstborn from the dead? Others will follow. What's that? Others will follow him. Yeah, that he's the first one that conquers death. And that as we follow him, we join him in his conquering. Yeah. What about firstborn among many brethren? That one gets a little stickier, doesn't it? The firstborn among firstborn among many brethren. Yeah, yeah. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, so usually Lord is Yahweh, and we're actually going to get, hold on to that, that's a perfect question. We're going to get to that. I'm glad you see that coming. Yeah? When the angel of the Lord appeared, was he not with Jesus? I don't know. That's, that's, that's a good question. When an angel of the Lord appeared, wasn't it often Jesus? I don't know. Maybe. Yeah? Well, there's two distinctions. There was the an angel, and then there was one, the angel of the Lord. The yeah. And that's the one that I think yeah, 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 yes. The scripture we read says that he is above the angels, so mm-hmm. you can, I don't see him as an angel as well. That's the problem. But remember the word angel means messenger, and couldn't Jesus be the messenger of God? Well, he's the Logos. So that's where it gets kind of, right? right? That's a great point, too, because all we can do is try to explain theological things in our very limited human language. Yeah, yeah like when Jacob and he... Wrestled Wrestle Jacob, God, yeah. He thought it was an angel. 
Right. That's what he says first. Yeah. Back to the brethren, firstborn among, among it was the birth of Christianity. Okay. Yeah. Which is which is a a, a new family. Yes. This is important if you're of Jewish tradition. What's well, he corrected what Adam messed up. Yes. So if you're Jewish and your family is like, because remember, for, for the Israelite, families are, are central. What happens when we put our faith in Christ? We become adopted as sons and daughters, right? So, so let me ask you this. If we identify God as Father, how do we identify with Jesus? Hebrews actually answers that question, and it's one of the only places in the New Testament that actually gives him this familial designation. <coughs> Jesus is our brother. Do you think of Jesus as your brother? Well, think about it. On the family tree, we have, a, we have a, a, the same father, right? And so if Jesus is the son of God, and I put my faith in the son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me, and now we both have access to the one Father by the same Spirit, that would make Jesus and I brothers, right? Yeah. Yes, also, it says, well, okay, the whole universe, okay, before creation, before God made everything. Yeah. All right, he's the Father, okay? So the Father, which has the Lord, which is Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. Mm -hmm. So the end of time will be the Yeah. If, if we could somehow personify it, if you can somehow imagine that time has mass to it, let's give it a cube shape. All time has some sort of, we, we take time and make it objective. Let's actually use a clock. This isn't a clock. I'm going to be semiotic here. This, this thing right here represents all of time, all of human history. And the seconds tick by, and the hours tick by, and the minutes tick by, right? What am I doing with this clock? I'm just holding it, right? Okay? But I'm outside of it. I'm above it, right? Jesus somehow holds time literally like this. as the Alpha and the Omega. He holds all things together. And when Jesus says, no, let me back up one. The Father, Son, and Spirit built this clock. They built this together in creation. They said, let's create this universe in space and time. Because it's hard to have space without time, right? You've got to have time. You've got to have some chronology. So this is part of their creation. And uh, this is a relatively simple mechanism uh, compared to all the things that you and I could do to it. It's, it's remarkably fragile, actually, isn't it? If I drop this, it'll break, right? This is, this is just you know your average, like, get it from target kind of clock. It's nice. It gets the job done. But at some point, they, they, they created time. They created this system called time, and they said, all right, let's alpha. Here's the alpha moment. Alpha. Okay, time goes on. Here we are limited in this chronology in space. Our lives are wonderful and terrible. We have our good days and our bad days. This minute was awesome. This minute was a challenge. Remember that Scripture describes us as being aliens, foreigners, and strangers. We are merely camping for the weekend in our life. If your life is a struggle and, a, and a, you're in a point of suffering, you have to remember that your life, in essence, is like a bad night in a cheap hotel. <laughs> That's what your whole life is. Your, the entirety of your life, compared to eternity, the entirety of your life on earth is no worse than a bad night in a cheap hotel. Well, of course it does, especially if you're trying to fall asleep and the bed feels like there's a spring here or you can't, can't stop thinking about bed bugs or whatever. And like in a hotel, you know, 90% of the rooms might be great, but some of them, you know, still smell like smoke or some of them have lice or whatever, you know, like, and you're, why did I get this bad room at the Holiday Inn? I don't know. That's just how it worked. But in the light, do you even remember the last time you were in a bad hotel? I bet we could all tell stories. Let's not do that. So anyway, so... The fiery furnace? Yeah, the three Hebrew children, Daniel chapter 3. The three men shed Wait, what are we talking about? <laughs> Wait, this is Hebrews. Hebrews. No, the Why? former the fourth is the son of God. Oh, okay. In the fiery furnace. Yeah. 
He was the fourth one walking around. With He's the brother, yeah. So when Jesus becomes incarnate, he goes from holding on to this thing to jumping inside. And actually, I mean, think about what he submits to in that. We seem like such fools sometimes to tell Jesus anything almost. Hey, hey Jesus, did you know it's, it's almost 9.35? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then when we get to Omega, this is Omega. It is done. I'm the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. We get so bent out of shape over this. It's temporary. So, our brother Jesus is the one in charge of this. And by the way, the deist view is that God creates the clock and then walks away and just says, good luck. That's not the God we're talking about. Our God is intimately interested and passionate and caring and loving and gracious about every one of these moments and seconds in your life. He knows everything you've done today. He knows your thoughts and motivations. He knows you better than yourself. And the one who intercedes for you is fully human in every way and so can testify in his intercession just what it's like to be locked into that chronology. Mind blown yet? And so when it says in Colossians that he's the firstborn from among the dead, we're talking about someone that is significantly greater, not only greater than David, but greater than the angels. Because to which of his angels did God ever say that? And then look at verse 7, or verse uh, 6 rather. Let's go back to Christmas, to the, to the nativity. It says, and again, Hebrews 1.6, when God brings his firstborn, who's that? Jesus, into the world, into the chronology, God says, what do you got? What's the quote? Let all God's angels worship him. So now the angels are really put into their place. So the angels are instructed, your job is to worship the Son. So please fill in the blank. Angels are made. They're created. The Son is what? He is the creator. He's part of the creator. He's the creator. He's eternal. He is king. He is maker. Is the Son made? No. Are you sure about that? Because there's an idea. It gets in our heads sometimes that God was like, I better make a son to go fix this problem. I'm going to, make, I'm going to create Jesus. And that's, that's not what happened. Do we agree on that? Yeah. It's very important in our theology. What's that? Yeah, Jesus is not created. One of the greatest ways we could refer to Jesus is as the uncreated one. Yeah. Father, Son, Spirit. More than one. Yeah. Father, yeah. Spirit, so. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. John 1, 3, all things were made by him. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. By the way, if you haven't heard this, you could always think of John 1 as the better Genesis yeah. 1. Yeah. Like, <laughs> not, not because God didn't do a good job, but because we, we flubbed it up. And then he's like, all right, I'm going to do yeah. this again. Um, creatures function as created. That, that whiteboard and stand can only, thank you for moving it around. We're going to use it as an example. Those things can only do what they were made to do, right? If I try to use that whiteboard as a boat, what's going to happen? Right? Well, why? It's only created to do that. Angels are created to serve. Jesus, the Son of God, is not created. He exists and has always existed. And his rule, his role is to rule and reign. So when it says, let all God's angels worship him, I don't hear it as, let all God's angels worship him. I hear it as, could you stand right in the middle of the room just for a second, Aaron? Just for a second. And could, um, just stay right there. Whoa, that was weird. Yeah, sorry, you can't, I'm sorry, sir, you can't leave. We've locked you in. No, do you need to go? It's okay, go ahead if you need to go. Okay, good. Um, and then, all right. So you and I, we're all angels. I'll, I'll, let me just temporarily play the role of God, okay, just for a second. So, so I'm not him. Make that really clear. For the recording, I am not the Lord. Okay, so, and, and Aaron is my begotten son. Son? Dad, right? And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, all right, go to earth, go to chronology, go to limitation, take on this limitation. 
you're all the angels. And now you're angels, and so you're going, well, God, what do we do with the son? Well, how do we respond to this son? To which God says, all you guys, all y'all, worship him. And I imagine that's how God says it. Let all God's angels worship him. So if God gives that order, what are the angels going to do? Show me. Show me what the angels would do. Yeah. Do you think they'd remain sitting? Do you really think the angels would stay? Do you think so? Show me. Show me what they would do. Show me what the angels would do. You don't have to get up, but just show me. What would they do? I, I bet, and I was, I was hoping someone would do this, but they didn't, that they would go and hoist Jesus up, like on, his, on their, right? But let's not do that because the ceiling. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you. This is, a, this is a big moment in chronology when God says, all right, here's how it's going to be. Now that my son, my begotten son, is here on earth, what I want is for all of the angels to worship him. Now, if the angels are worshiping him, who's at the top of that list? The angels or the son of God? Son of God, because if I'm worshiping something, I'm giving it its place. Preeminence. So, yeah, preeminence, great word. Preeminence. That you have an authority and a, and a power and a presence that I don't have. And it's built into you because you are the authority, power, and presence. You gave this to me as a created being. So yeah. only, only he can see him. What's that? So only he can see him. Only he can see what? The angels. Oh, no. Well, well why was when... When he was in his 30s doing his testimony and all that, yeah. why did his brothers and think he was, he was crazy? Because he claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be the Messiah. And what's every Jewish person waiting for? The Messiah. That's why they thought he was crazy. I think, well, we know that when Jesus was in the desert being tempted, that angels ministered to him. Right? So he definitely interacted with angels. <laughs> He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free, but he didn't. Can you imagine having that kind of arsenal at your fingertips when you're on the cross? Because that's kind of a bad day, right? So you, it, it, perhaps it crossed his mind, I don't know, because Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet did not sin. Did it cross Jesus' mind to summon all of heaven's angels to come and shut this whole thing down? In the garden, maybe on the cross, perhaps. If he yeah. was completely human, I would think it would have been. Yeah, because Je was Jesus tempted? Yes. You sure about that? Yes. Yeah, he was tempted in every way, yet he did not sin. Is temptation a sin? No, it couldn't be because Jesus is sinless. Angels serve and son, the Son of God rules and reigns. Now, then the writer of Hebrews gets to verse 8. After he says just a few things, he or she, say a few things about the angels, kind of putting the angels in their place. Then he gets to verse 8, and he says, now let's talk about the Son. About the Son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. Which, again, above chronology. And then he says something very interesting. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. Which means that the Son of God will rule and reign as a king, and he'll have a scepter, that thing, you know, that you hold up like a... And, and this scepter... It's like a, yeah, it's like a staff. That's your scepter of justice. You should call yes. your, yeah. Um, he holds it up like this, and, and he says, uh, in my kingdom, it's all about justice, which is making, God making it right again. And then in, in classic Hebrew poetic form, it says, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. All the time in Hebrew poetry, they'll, they'll draw extremes. You love skim milk and you hate vitamin D milk, that kind of a thing, like we have at my house. Like you just say, I love this so much that I just hate the opposite. What's the opposite of righteousness? Wickedness. This is Jesus we're talking about. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. And so Jesus, in being true to the justice of God, it says in the scripture, therefore God, your God, has lifted you above your companions, meaning he's lifted you above your, um, other humans by anointing you ping, with the oil of what? What's the same in your scripture? How many of you have gladness in the scripture? Gladness. How many of you have joy in the scripture? I, they're both, they both mean the same thing, obviously. We won't go to it, but in Psalm 23.5, that's, that's the shepherd's psalm, it says, you anoint my head with oil. To be anointed is to be set apart, to be chosen, to be preferred, to have the favor of God. But what I want to point out to you, this is another mind-boggling thing to me, that God doesn't just anoint his son with oil. He anoints him with the oil of joy. 
joy. That's one of the critical markers of a Christian, that we're a people of joy. And here's the joy of the Son, which is found in fulfilling the will of the Father. Do you want joy in your life? Fulfill the will of the Father. This, this is like at the center of our creation and salvation and eternity. The angels fulfill the will of the Father. Jesus fulfills the will of the Father. That he's been anointed with the oil of joy. The people that are most joyful, I don't just mean happy, because happy is based on the environment. Joy is based on our relationship ultimately with the Lord. The people that seem happiest are sometimes the people who have suffered the most. Why? Because they're being obedient to their Father even in their suffering, and our suffering produces perseverance, character, hope. We're so good at avoiding this. Aren't you glad that Jesus did not avoid this suffering? What is it that sort of greased the way for him to, to endure this? He's anointed with the oil of joy by fulfilling the will of the Father. And then... The writer of Hebrews starts talking about creation. He says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Go ahead and find Psalm 102, if somebody would. Psalm 102, 25 to 27. And go ahead and read it out loud. Psalm 102, 25 to 27. Exactly what the writer of Hebrews quotes. Could somebody read it in another, that's beautiful, King James, right? Or something like it? Could somebody read it in another translation? 102, 25 to 27. In fact, does anybody have like a, what translation do you have? Okay, let's do NIV. I mean, I'm sorry, it's English. ESV? Oh, I like that, that's good. And of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will, they will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. When we first moved into our house, down in the basement, there was this huge train table. And I'm, ta I'm not talking Thomas the Train. I'm talking HO scale. And the owner of the house said, oh, yeah, I'll go ahead and get rid of this old thing so you guys don't have to worry about it. And I said, no, because it was this huge layout, intricately sort of connected, and you could, like, change and do switching on the tracks, and there were these models, and all the little models were lit, and it was painted green, and there was blue for water and a backdrop. It was awesome. And our kids were of an age especially where they were like, this is amazing. You can't get rid of this thing, this train table. It's, it's incredible. I mean, he built it in the basement. There was no way we could even bring it upstairs. It was created and held in the basement of our house. And after a few years, we played with the train table less and needed the space more. And so I had to make the decision. And the decision was it was time to get rid of the train table. And taking it apart was not easy or fun. It's kind of sad because I love trains. I love that Bayshore has rails right here. I love it. <laughs> I love it. I'm like a kid when it comes to trains. And so when I had to say to the kids, I have to destroy the train table, <coughs> no! And I had a godlike power in that, this universe that had been created and put together so meticulously and purposefully was just taken out in an afternoon. And I took the train table, I pulled it out from the wall, and I lifted it up like this, and a bunch of pieces just slid off and all kind of broke apart. And I had track remnants and model remnants and just wires everywhere. And then I had to take a sawzall and just chop up the wood and then haul it all upstairs. That thing is gone. It's gone. So when the writer of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 102 and says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands, that's like saying there was a time when the guy who lived in our house built this train table. He laid the foundation. He measured it. He put it all together under the joists of the basement. The heavens are the work of your hands. But that table perished. But I'm still here. And so is the guy who built it. We're still here. And then it uses the scripture of like rolling up like a robe, like a garment. 
Let's pretend that this is creation right here. This is creation, right? And the ancient view of creation in the world and the universe is that it will never be destroyed. How could you destroy the world? Why would an ancient person think that the world was indestructible? Simple. Where would we go? Where, where, where do we, if the whole universe is destroyed, what happens to us? You can't po and philosophers would argue you can't possibly have us not exist someplace. So of course the world is indestructible. What's the scriptural view? The, scripture, the scriptural view of the world is that it's, it's temporary. The world as we know it. And so, again, Jesus, above chronology and above space, takes this beautiful world and says, okay, it's worn out and tattered enough. Let me go ahead and take it and roll it up like a robe. Jesus has all authority to do this. And in taking the world as it is and kind of rolling it up like a robe, kind of crumpling it up, and of course time is gone too, he just puts it right here. It's not that it never existed, it's just that it's not relevant anymore. Because as it says in Revelation, Jesus comes with a new heavens and a new earth. So it gets a little fuzzy here because especially, you know, like my view is that the kingdom of God is spreading now, but yet it's not completely fulfilled. But my, my interpretation of it is that this world as we know it will exist, but is being healed by God and will eventually be the way that it was supposed to be when it begins, when it began. And so if God has this kind of power to roll up things like a robe and change garments and put things away as if they are just garbage, they're, just, they're done, they're done. Look at the second half of verse 12. It says in verse 12, you will roll them up like a robe, like a garment, they will be changed. What's the second half say? But you remain the same. You are the same. And what does it say about time? Your years will never end. Again, we're trying to describe the divine eternity with our limited chronology. And so how do we describe God? Eternal. Always, always, always eternal. And so when everything falls apart, let's just talk about your world, just your microcosm. When your world falls apart, to whom could you possibly turn that would still be faithful and, and true? The only, the only one that's left. The only one that's left and the only one that's not affected as we are by chronology and space. Of course he's not affected by that. He's, not, he's above it all. Where do you go when it falls apart? Man, we busted that train table up and there's a bathroom there now. Completely different function, completely. <laughs> That was our new heavens and new earth. <laughs> yeah. Not if, but when. Not if, but when. When it all falls apart, because you're going to have it, to whom will you turn? And so, verse 14, or actually verse 13, again, the writer brings us back to angels. Because by now, we should understand that angels have their place, but the Son of God is superior enough to take it all. And the writer asks another rhetorical question. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? No angel ever hears that message, only the Son of God. And then the writer of Hebrews concludes by reminding us that all of God's angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. So let me just ask the room, just to make sure we're all clear. How is the Son of God superior to angels? Yeah, like, can we, let's do one at a time, because I, I bet there are a lot of great answers out here. Can you just do a hand raised thing like in the old days of school? Yes. He's not a created being, whereas angels are. Good. How else is the Son of God superior to angels? Yes, sir. He's outside of time. Angels, maybe they're outside of time, but they're still created. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's true. There was a time when they were created. Their eternity started later. Mind blowing. Exactly. God never told us to worship the angels. Excellent. Yeah. Angel can only be in one place at one time. Ooh. As far as we understand, angels can only be in one place at one time. That's great. Five points. What about over here? Yes. <laughs> The angels subject themselves to Jesus. Jesus created them. What else? Yeah. The angels serve, and Jesus is the one 
Yes, and yet, paradoxically, Jesus came to serve. Again, is his grace not amazing that he steps into this chronology and takes the role of a servant? Philippians 2, 5 through 11, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, Greek word doulos. He's a butler. He's a foot washer. Yeah? Um, God knows all things, and the angel's knowledge is limited. Beautiful. Angels know stuff, but they don't know things like God knows things. I think that angels laugh at us the way that we would sort of giggle at a toddler trying to walk sometimes. Like, oh, look at Adam. So adorable down there trying to teach the Bible. <laughs> you know? Oh, look at him. Oh, look at him try, you know? But... I think that the angels must recognize, how, must recognize how precious we are to the Father. I think that they respect us as God's creation. Just as I respect angels, but I certainly don't worship them. Yeah, there's something else over no, here. Mike yeah. is actually a question. Do you think the angels were surprised when God the Father sent Jesus as son to earth and then they were told to go worship know. and celebrate? And someone preached know. that in a sermon one time. Yeah. That the angels were like, what? Yeah, they, I can see that. Then they came down yeah. celebrating to the shepherds. I confused by the whole, not confused, but confounded by the whole salvation story and the whole free will. Uh, aren't they confounded by the view? Well, boy. This is just, this is another rhetorical question. I don't know the answer to this. What does it take to surprise an angel, considering what they must see? Right? Yeah. Turn to Second Peter two four. Keep going. They they saw they saw they actually yeah right. Let's go to Second Peter two four briefly. Somebody asked this question. They texted me yesterday, and they asked about fallen angels and demons. Like, where, what about those those guys? And this isn't supposed to be a Bible study on on angels, but I think since the Book of Hebrews gives it so much attention, and Second uh, Peter two four. Second Peter two four. Second Peter 2, 4. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. Angels must not have been totally surprised by the ability to fall away from Yahweh in that they saw it happen in their own ranks. Second Peter 2, 4 says this. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, and going on, if he did not spare the, angel, the, the ancient word when he brought the flood or its ungodly people but protected Noah, on, 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 um, verse 9, if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. So think of it this way. Angels are forerunners in sinning. Bad choice. Bad choice. But yet I make the same choice all the time. When I sin, right? Oh, yeah, they do. Sure. Angels do have, they must have freedom, right? Well, yeah. Do they still? It's never occurred to I, would, I would assume so. So can a demon repent? I don't, I don't know. Because then we get to Revelation and it talks about Satan, the accuser, who does not seem to have the, ability, the freedom to repent. Because he's cast into a lake of fire forever. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Angel of light, yeah. Right. Uh huh. Oh yeah, he's still an angel. You mean like size-wise or rank-wise? Yeah. Yes. Yes. He has a measured amount of temporary authority given to him. You can read about it in Job. But I, I prefer him as Lucifer rather than Satan because he's not going to be able to rule. It's very confusing. But it's extraordinarily confusing, yeah. Because we have all these interchangeable. We have Lucifer, the devil, Satan, Beelzebub. Then we have the demons, which are like sort of under. The prince of darkness, the father of lies. I mean, you name it. So, so 
let's let's you know let's bring this to its ultimate conclusion. If if whatever we call, if Lucifer is a fallen angel, what is Hebrews trying to tell us about ultimately about angels? That they are subject to the Son of God. Who's the one that we follow? The Son of God. My brother Jesus has all authority over any and every fallen angel. By the way, Hebrews 13 too, it came up yesterday. It's just worth mentioning. We talked about angel food cake, which true to prophecy was available in the dining hall for lunch or dinner. It says in Hebrews 13.2. And again, it's just sort of this passing thing. We go from this deep theology of angels to sort of a, the writer's own saying, hey, you know, angels still interact with this world. Hebrews 13, 2, it says, Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels uh, without knowing it. Which happens in Genesis, for example, among other places. So can we... All right, how do I do this? You're too big of a group to get into smaller groups. It'll just be chaos. Take two minutes. Pair up with somebody and see if you can just come up with a quick job description for an angel. Not a fallen angel, but an angel. Just come up with a job description for an angel. And what you, as a follower of Jesus, and how you might relate to an angel. Just, just pair up with somebody, perhaps, perhaps your loved one. Or maybe you could do a quattro, but that's it. Got to limit it to four. Okay? Just take, take two or three minutes. Job description for an angel. Three is great, too. Thirty seconds. Thirty seconds. Okay. All right. Wonderful. 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 Good stuff. Okay. All right. Stop fellowshipping. Bless lasagna. All right, so we're, we've got five slots, just five things. I know you talked about a lot of things. Just give us a five-point angel job description. Go. Messenger. Messenger, okay. Intervention. What? Intervention. Intervention? Describe that. Uh, and what scripture would you use to support that? Um, you know what I would use is the end of Hebrews 1. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Will you inherit salvation? Yes. Okay. Great. I have a story too I've got to tell. Worship God. Worship God. Yeah, of course. Did you ever notice, like it's not egotistical for God to create worshipers of, of him. It just naturally happens. If, if he creates you, you naturally worship him, right? Okay, so we have worshipers. That's three already. We need two. Yeah, Aaron. I think that the job description worship and everything is just subpoints under that. I know you think that. Because yeah. I know how you think. <laughs> and he's right. He's absolutely right. So we'll call that we'll call that the uh, 3A. Like just as a disclaimer, by the way. Okay, give me number four. Um, we pray to God. Mm -hmm. God gives the power to the angels to do the work that needs to be done. God answers prayer in many ways. I'm gonna keep that down to intercession though. God answers prayers in many ways, and that would include sending angels to assist us. You're absolutely right. We're not praying to angels. That's important. Yeah, that's good. Well, that's brilliantly said. I love it. We're not praying to angels. That would be silly. They go, why are you talking to me like that? I, you would, if I came to you and I said, Lord, would you heal my son? You'd be like, no, what? It feels awkward. That's how an angel would feel. Yeah, uh, right there. Yeah, Ephesians 6, there's a battle going on. Yeah, they're warriors. Oh, I like yes. that. Warriors, yes. Give me one more. You got room for... We got, yeah, we kind of got messenger. Per yeah, protector. I'm going to put that with intercessor. Such a great word. Give me one more. Encourager. How so? Easily. If we're entertaining angels, who knows what... Why would they come? It's not because they're looking for food. Angel food cake. They, they're doing... So here's what happened. Um... We were in inner city Chicago, me and my youth pastor, 
was in high school, he's the youth pastor, we're going to scout out a possible mission trip in Chicago, Illinois. At Western and 63rd, there's a mission called Olive, Olive Branch Mission. And to get to Olive Branch on Western and 63rd, which is a rough neighborhood, we had to take mass transit. We took the Amtrak in, we got on the CTA, and we took the CTA train to a bus. We took the bus, we walked all the way to Olive Branch Mission. When we got there, they said, they buzzed us in, and they said, how did you guys get here? We said, well, we, we walked. We just took the bus and walked. They said, you walked down 63rd by yourself? That was dumb. Like, they chastised us, right? Because it's dangerous. So then later on, we didn't experience any, any danger at all. Later on, that night, they're like, take the bus. Do this, do this. The bus is way safer. So we get on a bus. Me and my youth pastor, both of us kind of extrovert, sanguine, just kind of, hey, how you doing? How's it going? You know, like, that's how we are. That's not what city people like to do, okay? <laughs> We're just, we're just like happy-go-lucky suburbanites, you know, and we're both, he's a pastor and I want to be a pastor, and so anyway, so there's a guy sitting across from us like this, and he reaches into his vest pocket and he pulls out a knife, a utility knife, a Stanley utility knife with a little tiny blade that goes swing like the kind you'd use to cut up carpet, yeah. so we called him Stanley, right? <laughs> and Stanley has this knife and he's going, ugh. Uh, like that. We couldn't help but notice that everyone in the bus was like, wow, the Chicago Tribune is such a great paper. <laughs> and so we're trying to engage with him. Bad idea. Then all of a sudden, a woman shows up with red glasses, blonde hair, red glasses. I called her Sally Jessie because she had the red glasses of Sally Jessie. And she comes up and she goes to the guy and she says, knock it off. And she sits down next to us and says, what are you guys doing? So well, we're just, we're just trying to get downtown. She said, do you have any idea how you're going to do it? No, we figured we figured out as we go. She said, no, you're not. I'm going to go with you guys. She goes with us to get us downtown, and we never see her again. Now, is it possible she was a nice just city person? Absolutely. Do I have the theology that would allow me to think that that was an angel? 100%. 100%. Absolutely. We are at a hotel pool, me and Lexi and Mac and Zach and Emily. And Lexi's over here swimming with her life jacket on in the hotel pool. Malachi's just tall enough to touch the deep end. And then there's little Zach who wants to be like his big brother. Zach has no fear at all. And I'm paying attention to Lexi as she's swimming around. And Emily's paying attention to Malachi as he's swimming around. And then all of a sudden we had that, like, in, that moment where you do an inventory. Where's yeah. <laughs> Zach? And I look over at the pool and I just see two little hands sticking up above the surface of the water. And I reach down and I lift him up. And just thinking about how gravity works, I turn him upside down <laughs> to like drain the water out of his lungs, which <laughs> is not how it works. The epiglottis immediately stopped that from happening and so no water came out, but I just thought, it was like a cartoon, like I shake him. <laughs> I turn him back, I'm like, are you okay? And he's like, <laughs> I'm fine. And he said, he was, how old was he? This was 2012. So he's like three at this point. He said, an angel was down there with me and they told me not to worry. <laughs> Wild, vivid imagination. Lack of oxygen to the brain. <laughs> I really believe that there was an angel that went down there and said, it's okay, I've, your dad noticed you and you're going to be fine. You know, we have to be careful. It's easy to over-spiritualize these things. Like when we say, um, I was on my way to church and I got a flat tire. Satan must really not want me in church. Yeah. Well, no, you have bald tires and you drive in Michigan. <laughs> okay? Let's not give Satan too much credit, all right? At the same time, let's, let's be open to the possibility that God sends his ministering spirits to serve you. But then it also raises all kinds of theodicies. Like, why does God send angels sometimes but not always? Well, then we have to go back to that, that pesky clock and that piece of paper we crumpled up and threw away. In the end, uh, it's, it's just a bad night in a hotel. I have our a life story is. to share a little one. Share. I don't, we have like two minutes left. Two minutes. Well, I don't necessarily think it was a, like an angel sent from God, but the little girl in our cabin, I call her little angel, because um, me and my husband had a discussion, not last night, but the night before, and um, I had made a comment that I said, oh, well, fine, and I'm just, I'm just going to go home. It was kind of a discussion about something, and uh, I just said, fine, I'm just going to go home. He goes, no, we're on our vacation, so I left it at that, but I had been thinking, 
all that night laying down. And I'm just going to wait till he like goes off to one of his things and I'm going to leave. I'm just going to leave. And that little girl woke up that morning and she was kind of whiny. And she told her mama she thought Miss Kim was going to leave. She's three years old. Nobody heard what I was thinking. Yeah. So I really believe that God, you know. Sure. Something Intervened. Something happened. Okay. Because she, she, her mama said she thinks you're going to leave this <coughs> Yeah. So where would she have gotten this idea? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> sure, better not, not now. Listen, um, don't put too much stock in what you can see. We have no idea. If somehow we could see spiritually what's happening in this room even right now, I think we'd be blown away and we would stop taking ourselves so dang seriously. <laughs> we really would. And our little misgivings would not be a huge deal. Um, tomorrow we're going to, we've talked about how, how Jesus is superior to the angels and we've even come up with a job description, so hopefully by now, we're through chapter one and we understand the role of angels. Again, this is important because it builds the case for how Jesus is superior to Moses, which we'll talk about tomorrow. Don't miss this. This is very, very, very important. Uh, until then, two quick things. I'll try to remember the second as I tell you the first. One, somebody texted and said, you know what I like about the book of the Bible, Hebrews, is it tells us that only men make coffee. Hebrews. Ha, 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 ha. Now, that's pretty funny. It's sort of like, sort of like the question... Where is baseball mentioned in the Bible? Where is baseball mentioned in the Bible? In the big inning, verse 1 1. Two. Two. My, if you ever describe your children to people as little angels, and I know you just mentioned that, but if you ever describe your children as little angels and they misbehave, just describe them as fallen angels in that moment. Okay? Let me pray for us. Jesus, we affirm your superiority to all things. You don't need us to do that, but we need to do that. We need to remember that you are above all and in all and through all. And so thank you for the gift of life. Forgive us for all the ways that we complain about it and take it for granted. Forgive us for putting too much attention on our faults and our failures instead of being aware of your amazing grace. And now, Jesus, as we go, we go in your name. We go with joyful hope. We go with a new spring in our step because now we see just a little bit more just how involved you are with the intricacies of our lives and just how, to what great length you will go, Jesus, to carry us through. We trust you. We believe. Help our unbelief. We glorify you now and we pray this in the name of the superior and almighty Son, our Alpha and Omega. Amen? Amen. Amen. See you guys.